2: Vardy, Mares, of course. Leicester City, with goals from their two stars, are back on top of the Premier League. And we are back with another midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining myself and Nipun Chopra for another midweek edition of our show, the second week in a row that we're going to be coming to you between our weekend wrap-up shows. Later in the show, we're going to have Kartik Krishnair on to talk about Europa League draw, Champions League draw, your 26 draw, as well as his recent trip to Germany and what he learned about the Bundesliga. Right now, I am joined again by Nipun Chopra. And Nipun, let's get right to it. Two to one victory for the Foxes. They're two points clear at the top of the Premier league and chelsea perhaps just as notably is only one point above the drop tell me what you thought about today's
0: match at the king power stadium first of all here i am with my tail between my legs i predicted (laughs) i didn't want to bring it up it was i know i appreciate that richard i appreciate that but uh i mean not only did chelsea not outplay uh leicester city in the first half they could have had three or four goals. I know that Chelsea kind of came back into it, Richard, in the second half. and You mean Leicester uh, could have had
2: three or four goals? I'm sorry, goals thank
0: you. Yeah, uh, Leicester could have scored three or four goals. I know Chelsea came back into it in the uh, latter half of the second half. But in general, you have to say that Leicester City deserved this win.
2: Yeah, Leicester, over the last 30 minutes after Chelsea went to three defenders... Uh, swapped off John Terry for Seth Fabregas. Kind of looked like a team that just wasn't used to keeping a lead like that against a talented opponent. But for the first 60 minutes, Leicester was the much better team. They went into halftime up 1-0, having not even allowed a shot on goal to that point. Mm -hmm. Riyad Mahrez scores that nice left-footed kind of push shot to the far corner three minutes into the second half. And at that point, Chelsea's down two goals. They don't even have a shot, and they've lost Eden Hazard. It was... It was the exact game that the table itself would have told you it was going to be.
0: Exactly, and you know what? I, I was I was following the uh, narrative on Twitter a little bit, and I was surprised uh, Arlo White was talking about uh, the fact that Ranieri might have been showing some uh, tactical. Uh, what is the word he used? I think he used the word um, uh, innocence. I think uh, trying to suggest that Ranieri was getting his tactics wrong by sticking with the four-four-two, hmm. but. I think it's amazing that he stuck with a four four two. I think that's exactly what he should have done. You know, had this been any other team, we would have been saying, Oh, Team X, Man United weathered the storm of a resurgent Chelsea in the second half. <laughs> but because it's Leicester City, we are criticizing the fact that this man who has played with the traditional four four two, a formation that has been largely discarded in the Premier League, uh, is playing with a four-four-two that's very similar to to the 442 he played with Chelsea when he was at Chelsea. And why shouldn't he stick with that? So, what if Chelsea with all the attacking talent dominated for the last 30 minutes. We should be celebrating for Ranieri for this.
2: And sometimes you just have to play your best players, too. Uh, they yeah. lost Danny Drinkwater in the first half, so it's That's not that. like they necessarily had um, depth in midfield, although they did bring on Gokan Inler much later in the game after bringing on Andy King early. But their best player is Mark Albrighton. He's a winger. That's the only yeah. position he can really play. Riyad Mahrez cuts in from the middle, from the wide, can play through middle, but he's pretty much a winger. They have a yeah. lot of talent in forwards we saw Leonardo Ulloa starting today for Okazaki. Okazaki came on. They have depth at striker to start two there. At some point, you just have to play your 11 best players. And I think that's part of the brilliance of this 4-4-2 he has going there. In addition to the talent that he has, it suits the
0: talent best. I agree with you. And, you know, uh, I-, I heard you guys talk about it yesterday on, uh, on World Soccer Talk. And it was a t- terrific, terrific review, as it always is. But I was, I was... Thinking about Ranieri as as this man who is largely derided, and some of this that you guys mentioned too, but he's largely derided in football because of especially what happened in Italy. But when you look at the Chelsea team that we celebrate, Richard, the likes of Lampard, Mm -hmm. Terry, McAuley, Gallus, all of these players were brought through by Ranieri before he left. In some ways, the same stuff that we say about Pep Guardiola taking over from Van Hall we can say that Jose Mourinho inherited a brilliant Chelsea team because of what Ranieri did. And let, let me end with this. In 2004, when Ranieri was sacked, he was sacked on the back of a, a season that was, that ended in, I think they was second place to Arsenal. I think that was the invincible year, as well as they got to the semifinal in the Champions League. I, I don't remember which team uh, they lost to in the semifinals. Neither and yet he was sacked, Richard. And, Let's oppose that to Chelsea today. Jose Mourinho is in one, well, one or two points away from the uh, uh, drop zone, has lost more games this season than he's ever lost in a Chelsea uh, as a Chelsea manager and yet he is still in his job. So Chelsea has changed as well.
2: Chelsea now have lost more games this year than the previous two years combined. Mourinho in his third year back at Stamford Bridge. And already the stories, we see them on our Twitter feeds. I see them, uh, the wire stories. They're speculating that this is going to heap even more pressure on Jose Mourinho. Nipun, what are your thoughts on this? I don't have a good read on the situation. Part of me says that if Mourinho has made it this far, then maybe Chelsea really is resigned to... Going through this whole year with him, no matter what. But then, this is Roman Abramovich we're talking about. <laughs>
0: yeah. But he he is different, right, Richard? We already have to accept that because he's given Jose way more time than he's given any manager before. Uh, and I think he realizes the fact that he made a mistake with sacking or falling out with Jose in the first place. So maybe he is evolving a little bit to his to his credit. But to come to your first question about Jose Mourinho and whether he should stay in the job. I'm very conflicted like you are. I think everyone is. So so just before we started recording, maybe an hour ago, I spoke to a good friend of mine who's a Chelsea supporter, whose opinion I trust, and he says that he he wants Jose to stay in the job. So I gave him a hypothetical then, Richard. I was like, what if we get to February, March, and uh, Chelsea's still in 13th, 14th position, or whatever, 12th position even, uh, basically not even close to the top four. And he said as long as they beat uh, PSG in the Champions League, he still wants Jose to continue. So from the perspective of this one rational Chelsea supporter, it is almost a season write-off Ending Champions League results.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty big bar that he's set for Jose. It's almost as if he set a little bit of a trap for him. But maybe (laughs) that's just maybe that's just a way for him to rationalize the limits that he's willing to take his devotion. It's interesting to contrast Chelsea's situation with Manchester United situation. I'm going to repeat something that I've said on previous podcasts, but I'm going to repeat it as a way of setting up your opinion on it. Part of the reason I would keep Jose Mourinho is going player for player. All of these players just look like they have hit a point in their career where they're old or they're regressing or this in the case of Nemanja Matis just playing inexplicably bad. And I just have a difficult time given his track record believing that all of a sudden Jose Mourinho makes players bad as opposed to the coincidence that these players happen to be regressing at the same time. I think that's a long shot coincidence, but I find Mm -hmm. it more likely than the story that Jose Mourinho all of a sudden makes players bad. Now, I contrast that with Louis Van Hall, who you and I talked about about midweek yep. after the Wolfsburg disappointing results and I look player for player and I don't see a lack of skill with these players. I don't think Anthony Martial or Juan Mata or Chris Smalling or David De Gea are playing poorly. I think Louis van Gaal is using his pieces incorrectly and I think you mm-hmm. see that in the stoicism in the lack of life and lack of creativity and imagination of Manchester United's players. So it is kind of weird to say this team that's fourth in the Premier League I think they should change managers. This team that's one point from the drop, I don't think they should
0: change managers, but that's my logic, Nipun. I think it's a I think it's a well-rationaled argument there, Richard. Though, uh, one, so I agree with especially the, the Chelsea part. I think it is more of a case of players regressing, but let me add a little bit more of nuance to that. I don't think that's true across the board. I think... In my Mm. opinion, it is more true of key players in key positions in this Mourinho system. Because we know what Mourinho likes to play. He needs those SCN type players. He needs Nemanja Matic to have game after game at sevens and eights, if not Mm. tens. So when you have a key player like that, a key player like Matic, a key player like Costa, and of course, the in in some ways, their only game changer last season, Hazard, uh, performing at the levels they are, maybe any manager uh, wouldn't be able to bring out the best in them, but maybe it is because um, something to do with Mourinho. You, you, get what I'm, you yeah. see what I'm getting at? So it's, maybe it's not a case of simply the fact that all the players are regressing. It might just be a fact that key players are not performing Particularly under Mourinho.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. It reminds me of a theory that my friend Graham Macquarie has. He runs, uh, we ain't got no com, which is the biggest Chelsea blog on the internet. Uh,
0: he has ther- a <laughs> lot, lot of activity on that blog, I'm sure today. All,
2: all the time, but recently, <laughs> yes. Uh, his theory behind the great Chelsea teams that we've had over the last decade is they had so many players that can play that can master dual roles. So you had Frank Lampard that was a box-to-box midfielder, but contributed like an attacking midfielder. Mm -hmm. And you had Michael Essien, a box-to-box midfielder that can also play a destroyer's role. And can
0: score (laughs) worldly goals from 50 yards out.
2: Right. And you had players like Ashley Cole, who also transcended their position. In addition, having players like Didier Drogba and John Terry and Petr Cech, who didn't have that kind of transcending their positions, but they were just as good as anybody at the positions that they had. Now, now you look at the players that Chelsea has right now none of their players are transcending their position in fact you would look at players like Eden Hazard and Ces Fabregas and Nemanja Matic and say that they're not even mastering one set of skills let alone skills that transcend their position so maybe you're right that more nuanced view might be a way to rationalize it a little more it's not so much about across the board that all these players are regressing but like you said Hazard is regressing. Mm-hmm. Fabregas is res- regressing. Costa is regressing. T- Gary Cahill is now not a assured starter anymore, and Thibaut Courtois is only now coming back. I, I yeah. think I like your theory a little bit more than mine, or
0: maybe I like the marriage of our two theories. Yeah, I like the merge for sure. And let's not forget, of course, uh, some other players as well. I mean, we we've talked we, last week. We talked about how well um, William has done this season, but you balance that with the fall of last year's free kick taker which was oscar so there's definitely something going on that people like you and i richard who uh think about this a lot are not being able to figure out because let's be honest mourinho hasn't figured it out and he's arguably one of the best tacticians out there leicester city are they title contenders in your mind at this point great question uh (laughs) i i heard you guys talking about it and uh let me say this so What Lawrence said is in some ways dead on. He, he talked about the fact that there has to be recognition of the fact that when you look at Leicester City on paper, Richard, they do not look at, look like winners. But at the same time, let's also be cognizant of the fact that when we look at any team, when we judge any team in history, we always judge their performance, their style of playing, their tactics, all of that in retrospect. We, you know, we look back at these things. So it is theoretically possible. Yeah. even though they don't look good on paper that they are title contenders i think i still think they're not and it's so unfair right richard i mean mm-hmm. we, uh, what we've we set up the most ridiculous parameter for them this 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 set of games in december I, you know i said there's no way they're going to navigate them they're going to be in fourth at the end of it they have got through every single hurdle so far so why shouldn't we be celebrating them as possible title contenders and i think so basically i didn't answer your question <laughs> yeah.
2: well no you you did you answered it very much the same way we did this weekend and yeah. that we can't just look at these isolated results and ignore the broader history around these players this manager the team etc but every week we get a little bit more that informs and changes that picture i will say one thing that is starting to convince me and it actually has almost nothing to do with Leicester City. For yeah. two weeks in a row, we've seen a series of disappointing results at the top of the Premier League. Mm-hmm. And at some point, based on relatively relativity alone, we have to look at Spurs, and we have to look at Liverpool, and we have to look at Manchester United, and say, you know, Leicester might not be as good as... Other people think they are, but these other teams are much worse than we thought they were. And based on that alone, maybe Leicester needs to be considered,
0: if not a title contender, at least a very strong candidate to finish in to the top four. I think I think you're right. I think top four is something that we should at least give them that much. They deserve that based on what they've done. They're, they're, you know, they're three points or two points ahead at the top of the table on December 14th. This isn't, isn't a flash in the pan like Portsmouth, who were fourth uh, in September. This is December and they deserve more credit than we're giving them. I think, f- I think we should be regularly discussing them as a genuine top four contender
2: and as long as they stay in first we have to discuss them whenever we discuss any title contender well that was the result from Monday Chelsea losing at the King Power Stadium two to one now we're going to shift gears after this break coming up and talk to Kartik Krishnair about three very important draws that happened this week tournament draws as well as his time recently spent with Bayer Leverkusen and Schalke looking at the Bundesliga Kartik Krishnair is joining us now. This will be the last time we hear your voice for a couple of weeks, Kartik. Thanks for taking the time to join us before stepping on a plane, though.
1: Yeah, uh, my, my pleasure, Richard. And I guess uh, those of you who want to hear more of me, you can hear me with Nate on Wednesday after I arrive in India. I'll be on uh
2: World Soccer Talk Radio. That's right. Yes. So you're not going to be completely out of touch. And we'll probably uh, hear some good things about what's going on in India, soccer in India, uh, one of the emerging sports over there right now. Kartik, uh this weekend we had the Euro 2016 draw a highly anticipated draw as this is the first time the European Championships will have 24 teams. Let me go ahead and read off those groups really quick for people who either didn't see the news or have forgotten or somebody like me who both saw the news and forgot. Uh, group A is the home <laughs> nation is the host nation France grouped with Romania, Albania and Switzerland. A lot of people saying that's a fortunate draw for le bleu. Group B, England, Wales, Russia, Slovakia. Group C, Germany, Ukraine, Poland, Northern Ireland. Group D, the defending champion, Spain, with Czech Republic, Turkey, Croatia. Group E, number one ranked team in the world, Belgium, with Italy, Ireland, and Sweden. A lot of people calling that the deepest group in the draw. We'll see about that. And then Group F, Portugal, Iceland, Austria, and Hungary. Kartik, which of those groups stand out to you? I think Group D
1: certainly stands out for me. That's a That's a very, very difficult group, which I could see going multiple ways that's the group um, that
2: i think is the deepest in a draw maybe it's because people are overlooking turkey maybe rightly so because they haven't had the best uh, qualifying record lately but that seems like four decent teams there
1: yeah without a question whereas i think group e we've heard a lot about because italy's in the group and there's this assumption that italy is going to rise up in this tournament i'm not sure about that honestly i i mean I made the mistake, and Richard, you you called me out on it six years ago, and and you were right, and I was wrong when I said you and our other co-host at the time, Lawrence McKenna, were were disrespecting Italy going into that World Cup. And I said, well, Italy always gets out of the group. They always contend to win tournaments. Well, they did it in that tournament. Mm -hmm. They were terrible in that tournament. Euro 2012, they made the run to the final because of Balotelli is not in the national team anymore, isn't anywhere near the form to be in that national team at this point. And uh, 2014 World Cup, they were pretty abjects and they were pretty dour in qualifying, even though they won their qualifying group. Uh, I, I like Belgium. I, I know that there's a lot of concerns about whether Belgium can put it together in a tournament. We still don't know if they can, but obviously they've got the personnel to do it. So I think Group D is actually tougher than Group
2: E. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Group E is... Four decent teams, but three of them are somewhat limited. You talked about Italy. Ireland, we know they can be very difficult, but they are a very limited team going forward. And then Sweden is going to be dependent on one person, and one person who um, hasn't been to a major final for a while.
1: Yeah, and you know, the thing about Zlatan is it's just, and it's almost like Cristiano also. There's so many parallels between those two players, but they were at the wrong time nationally, national team-wise, because I could see Zlatan, If he had been on the on the Sweden teams uh, ten years ago and had been in his in in his at the apex of his career at the time, although he was already kind of a a very very good player, but ten to twelve years ago, let's say 2002, when Henrik Larsson was in his prime and they had so many top players at the time, uh, I could see Sweden having made a run at at winning the World Cup in 2002 or or the Euros in 2004. That didn't happen. If Cristiano had been uh, ten years younger and were on the great Portuguese teams, the 2000, 2002, uh, 2004. I can almost guarantee you they would have won one of those tournaments.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's go group by group, Karthik. I don't think we should do predictions because a lot of how these groups play out depend on the order of the games and what teams are playing for in that third match. And in this tournament, too, where only six teams are going to bow out, or sorry, uh, eight teams are going to bow out at the group stage, it's almost not worth predicting which teams are and aren't going to go through. But let's just go through the groups and give some kind of impression as of what we think um, the dynamic is going to be, which teams we think are strongest. And we'll start with Group A, where France drew Romania, Albania, and Switzerland. I tend to agree with the common conception of this one, Kartik, where France is not only considered a co-favorite for this tournament, but in this group, I really don't see a threat to them.
1: No, I don't. And the, the thing I am kind of excited about for this group is Albania has never been to a major tournament before. They don't have a strong enough football uh, culture or base for their national team to, to, to regularly start to qualify now. So they're in a very weak group, and Albania may be able to get uh, two points in this group. They can get two draws, maybe. They can can beat Romania, maybe. So that's something I'm kind of excited about because I was worried they were going to be the weakest team in this entire field. That's what I thought. Now that they're in that group, maybe not.
2: Jonathan Wilson wrote this week that Romania is the weakest team in this field, and the fact that they were ranked 7th at one point this year by FIFA is the greatest indictment of FIFA's rankings that you could have.
1: Yeah, I agree. Jonathan Wilson knows more about Eastern European football than all of us combined, and I tend to agree with that. I watched them twice against Northern Ireland, and I felt like Northern Ireland really took it to them in spite of the results, really uh, controlled both those games. And that uh, Northern Ireland is no great shakes, right? They they're, they're good. They qualified for this tournament, but they're not they're not a, a Belgium level or, or Germany level team. And, and they they took it to uh, to Romania. I saw Romania struggle against Finland, also. Actually, when I saw that game, also. So I, I'm not I'm not keen on them at all. They I think they'll finish last in this group. Actually, I think Albania we, uh, will either draw them or beat them.
2: Group B: England, Russia, Wales, and Slovakia. I think England is probably the strongest team in this group, but only slightly. I wouldn't want to put money on any outcome in this group, Kartik.
1: Well, with England, I I mean, I guess it's the case with everybody, but England especially depends on injuries. We've got Walcott, who's injured uh, chronically, uh, Daniel Sturridge, Danny Welbeck, Jack Wilshere.
2: Luke Shaw. Really,
1: Luke Shaw, right. I mean, the guys that they're really going to count on in this tournament, if all those guys are fit, uh, Oxley, chamberlain also, all those guys are fit, they will be a strong team. A cont- yeah. Not necessarily winning this uh, tournament, but they could make the semifinals. Mm-hmm. Without those guys, or maybe with half those guys, uh, they might struggle even to uh, to win this group. So uh, England is a, a great unknown quantity because I think on paper they are one of the stronger teams in Europe. Like, they are injury littered uh, now more than ever. I mean, they they have a disproportionate number of injuries. Maybe it's because they have a disproportionate number of players playing for Arsenal. I don't know. <laughs> but they have a disproportionate number of injuries compared to every other top team in, in this field.
2: Group C, Germany, Ukraine, Poland and Northern Ireland. A lot of the early analysis is saying that Germany is going to have I wouldn't say struggles, but there are a couple of challenges in this group, and that's based mostly off of some unconvincing performances Germany had towards the end of qualifying. Kartik, I tend to believe that come June, Germany's going to have their act together. This is going to be a somewhat straightforward group for them.
1: Uh, maybe. Uh, they have a problem with the fullback position in Ukraine as a team. Uh, Yarolenko and other
2: players that can exploit that with, with yeah. the, the, Kana the Kana whip. Plionka. and Yarolenko yeah. might be the best wing right. pairing in this tournament.
1: Right, and that's so. I think that that's a, a problem matchup for, uh, for Germany. Uh, Poland has beaten Germany in qualifying, and they seem to always seem to get grouped together with them, and there's a big rivalry there. Uh, Northern Ireland, I think, is a pretty good team. They got a, they got a rough draw, but they're better than people think. Uh, Germany will get through this group, and they, whether they win it or not, and they're one of the favorites to win this tournament. But uh, Taylor Twelman made a great point on our American broadcast of the Euro draw, saying. He's not convinced by Germany since Philipp Lahm retired. There's a leadership void on the team. He feels, and then there's also that right back uh, position that's a big question mark for them. So uh, uh, Twelman mentioned that, and I thought, oh yeah, that's right. He's absolutely right because I don't. Schweinsteiger is also kind of a leader, but he doesn't seem to have that that quality. You know what I'm saying? That that mm-hmm. kind of leadership, calmness, uh, versatility that that Lahm has. They are they are missing Philipp Lahm. However, the Germans will find another Philip Lom soon, I'm sure.
2: The one thing that I, I question, and maybe it's just because this qualifying cycle was the first time we've ever had so many teams qualifying from the UEFA process, which didn't divide teams up into more groups. Basically, the second-place teams were going through. And I just wonder if some of the big teams, like Germany, like Spain, just kept it in neutral for a little bit longer. And if that is the case, Karthik, the qualifying process becomes far less informative than it was in previous years, where Back right. in the 2010 cycle, we could kind of see that Italy was creaking. I don't know that Germany or Spain have really put their best foot forward. I guess we'll see come this tournament, but... Well, uh, I, I, I think that
1: uh, German Ger- Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think knowing that the top two were going to qualify, it allowed you to kind of uh, try and bloodlet some younger players, which Germany did more than Spain. Del Bosque is still kind of partial, and we'll get to that when we get to Spain. We'll talk about Spain in a minute. But <laughs> Germany has brought in some younger players. We've seen the Leroy Sanes get get run outs. We've seen other players that are now, uh, Emre Sean even, uh, get some caps in in qualifying. And they were also in a group with the Republic of Ireland, a Scotland who should have been better than they were, a Republic of Ireland who's, who's pretty good, and Poland who's very good. Poland has one of, uh, what, three or four world-class scorers on this planet playing for them right now. And obviously the German defenders have been terrorized by that guy in the Bundesliga for years and they were terrorized by him in qualifying also. So, and they're going to play Poland again in this, this group. So I think Germany was in a tough group, honestly, for qualifying Spain, Uh, Maybe I take a different conclusion out of uh, their qualifying struggles.
2: Well, we already talked about Group D, Spain's group, a little bit. Let's talk about Spain specifically because if you look at the betting odds, Germany, Spain, France are the three teams that are picked out as the top-tier favorites. And going back to what I said before – I just don't know, Kartik. Spain nec- hasn't necessarily played at that level. Even looking at their team, I'm not even sure that they have the same kind of talent that Germany and France does. And it seems like the regard that you see in the betting markets for them is based off of p- pedigree and not necessarily recent form.
1: Yeah, I tend to think they might struggle in this tournament. And and now they're in a, uh, a group that is uh, difficult, uh, very difficult from from my estimation. I, I, I think they are not turning over the squad quickly enough, and they've got a lot of guys who are struggling at at, at club level, a lot of guys struggling in, in the Premier League, guys struggling in, in La Liga that they're continuing to count on at the national team level, and at the same time they have a really bright generation of young players that Del Bosque refuses to to, to kind of bet, uh, bet into the squad. Now, I guess that'll happen before the 2018 World Cup, but... I don't know. I would have done it dur- during the course of this qualifying period. I think they would have been stronger if you had some of the younger players and too numerous to list. There are there are about five five to seven strong young Spanish players who are not getting the kind of look uh, consistently they need to from this national team. Uh, I, then again, this group of players has won three major trophies, so uh, they're going to go to the well one more time. And, and also, uh, I can't uh, I can't overstate not having Xavi Hernandez what that means in. Uh, the Spanish side and what uh, Barcelona can go out and sign a guy to replace him, Right. And then, but even they they had
2: to remake how they play their football too.
1: Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, But Spain can't sign a guy to replace him and they can't. And uh, there are a few players in the last, 20 years of world football who have been as influential as that player. I'm not saying he's the best player of the last 20 years. I'm not arguing that at all. Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Zidane. Those are those are the three best. But as far as pure influence on the way we play football, the way we watch football, and the teams he's been on, stylistically, uh, it'd be tough to argue anyone's been more uh, influential than him.
2: I don't think it's just the young kids, too, uh, with Del Bosque, He's, like you mentioned, he's really stubborn about the core people that he has, which means players like Nolito for Kelta aren't getting in there or Ararits for Athletic having a great year, a little bit older, not going to get a look come June. And it seems like Iker Casillas might still end up being the number one, even though week in, week out, we see what David De Gea can do. Uh, group E, we've talked about, that's the Belgium group. I think Belgium can win this tournament. I think they can go out in the quarterfinals. Yeah. They have to, it remains to be seen.
1: Look, uh, here's the thing. I I, I mean, uh, we're going to talk about my trip to Germany a a little bit later. There is this kind of dismissiveness of Belgium, and I I faced it while we were there, based on pedigree, based on as a national team never winning anything. Now, I'm as into history, our listeners know this, as anyone, but as I look at the squad, the list of players Belgium has... I, I don't know who can beat them, honestly, if they click, including Germany and Spain and, and, and France. I mean, France is at home. But I, I I think player for player, other than Argentina, they have the best yeah. national team in the world. I and agree with you. They, because they're Belgium, we're saying, well, they can't win this, or they're, they're going to struggle, or Italy might win this group. If they were another nation with a history of winning major tournaments, we would think very differently about them. I, once again, I went to the Belgium squad after the draw, and... I said, gosh, who's going to beat this team in Europe? The only national team I could see beat them on a neutral site if they're playing well is Argentina. And as I said, they're not in UEFA. They're not in this tournament.
2: I think the concerns I have with Belgium are less about pedigree because, as you and I know from working together during the uh, 2010 World Cup, I don't really care about that. Like with the rest of the teams in Europe, it's hard to tell what you have because the competition is so thinned out during this cycle. Uh, Belgium was decent at the last World Cup, certainly showed their potential, but didn't necessarily convince you that they were going to take that next step. So that leaves a little bit of an open question. They have so much talent, but you see some of that talent, like Eden Hazard, does not perform anywhere near his peak when he's been with Belgium, and he's never he right. never has. And then the one big question is Mark Wilmot's. That's the one thing about Belgium. Is their coach actually going to be able to get them through the cycle or through this tournament and get them to play to their potential? It's certainly possible. Um, we'll, have to, we'll have to wait and, wait and yeah, see. Yeah,
1: but you think about that the, there are defensive problems on most of the top teams in, Definitely. This, in this tournament, including France, the host. And you think about guys like Lukaku, potentially spelling him with Benteke and Origi, uh, De Bruyne, Hazard, uh, Fellaini, all these players, Axel Witzel in, in that midfield, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nagalan, I'm I'm forgetting some guys, but they have so many good players, Belgium. Think about those guys running at some of the defenders in this tournament. They can win this tournament. I'm convinced of that.
2: Yeah, I don't think anybody should scoff at somebody predicting that Belgium will put it together because like we're talking about with Spain and Germany, they're not looking so good. Anybody that predicts one of those teams is going to win is implicitly saying that they will put it together with the same kind of faith that somebody picking Belgium to win this tournament is going to be using to make their pick. The last group, Kartik, this is... I. I really dislike this group. I think this is a boring group. Uh, Portugal, Iceland, which I do think is an interesting team. Austria and Hungary. There's nothing about this group that really intrigues me, to be honest.
1: No, I mean, I guess the one thing that could be interesting is Austria. Uh, they, They look ready to take that next step. And uh, they were given a very accessible group to do so. So I would expect them to win this group, and if they don't, I'll be pretty disappointed.
2: Let's move on to Champions League here, Kartik. With a round of 16 draw was today. Uh, some very interesting matchups. Uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, the the headliner. This is the matchup that Arsenal fans were absolutely ruining. The reason that Arsenal fans have come to really lament all these second place group finishes that Arsene Wenger has had up. A- Habit of delivering in recent years. You couldn't really fault them for this one because they were drawn into the same group with Bayern Munich thanks to the new rules UEFA has for doing the draws. But unfortunately for them, they got Barcelona again.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess that's it. They, they fought <laughs> so hard to get through the group stage at getting the result they needed against uh, Olympiacos. If Olympiacos scored in that, that home leg last week, uh, it might have been a different story. Uh, they go through on uh, on the tiebreaker. Uh, goal difference tiebreaker head-to-head with Olympiacos. Remember, they only had nine points at the group stage. And um, this is their reward. Um, I don't know. It seems like Arsenal is owed one of these, right? Because they sh- they were unlucky against Barcelona now, I think, five years ago, right? When Van Persie got that second yellow. Hmm. And uh, even late in that game, Nicholas Bentner uh, missed a, a, a golden chance to to win on away goals. And then uh, one of the ties against Bayern, I felt they were very unlucky. The, the other time they played Bayern, they weren't. Right. So it feels like maybe law of averages, but no, nah, I can't see this Barcelona team uh, slipping in Champions League against, against Arsenal, especially considering this might be Arsenal's best shot as we talk about regularly on this show to win this league. And maybe being out of Champions League will just make it easier.
2: Hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and read down the rest of the ties, and there are two other marquee ones that we're going to zoom in on very quickly. Uh, the first one's out of the pots. Belgians, Ghent, Wolfsburg. One of those teams are going to make their first ever quarterfinal appearance. Roma faces Real Madrid. That Roma defense against Real Madrid should be something. PSG, Chelsea, again, third straight year. Juventus, Bayern, another marquee match matchup PSV versus Atletico de Madrid good draw there for Atletico Benfica and Zanit will be a good battle and then Dinamo Kiev versus Manchester City you can go to bitterandblue.com and read uh, Kartik's thoughts on Manchester City he'll certainly he's already had some thoughts on Manchester City this was the the second most uh, undesirable draw for him the other one being PSG as a possibility let's zoom in on PSG Chelsea right now Kartik this is a marquee matchup because of the names involved in the recent history between the teams but also, this is this looks like a pretty lopsided one. One team that has only lost once in Europe this year, a one nothing defeat at the Santiago Bernabeo against another team that is barely above the relegation spots in its league.
1: Yeah, and and a team in PSG that can win this tournament this season. Uh, look, uh, Barcelona and Bayern are the presumed favorites, but you see significant cracks with both of those teams, at least how they're going in their domestic league. Now, perhaps. It is because, and it is, La Liga and the Bundesliga are both significantly better leagues than France now. We've seen this uh, this outflow of players from France to uh, mid-table, second-tier teams in England. But uh, PSG has just looked so purposeful this season. And uh, there have been, in the past, I've complained about Laurent Blanc's tactics. They get ahead, they shut it down. I haven't seen as much of that this season. I think hmm. he is probably under a directive from uh, above uh, from, from the folks in, in Doha, you need to win the win the Champions League or at least make a push for it this season. So I, th- I think they're going to get through this. Uh, this is unfortunate for Chelsea because I, I feel like with their league season down the tubes, it's unlikely they qualify for league, uh, Europe via league position, although they could, of course, still win the FA Cup and, and qualify uh, that way uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, the Europa League next season, that uh, they were counting on maybe getting a, a Zenit or getting a, a Team that they felt like they could beat, maybe at Letty, because at Letty the game will be low scoring enough that uh, although the way Chelsea is attacking, I, I couldn't see them scoring at all and over two legs with Atleti. But I, I feel like they felt like they would get something better than this, and it's uh, it's disappointing, I guess, for uh, for Chelsea because th- now this is becoming a perennial bugaboo for them, the same way that Bayern and Barcelona have become perennial bugaboos for Arsenal
2: and Manchester City. Hmm. Um, one other matchup to focus in on: Juventus versus Bayern Munich. Feel bad for Juventus here. Uh, they're certainly a capable team, and they showed last year in knocking off Real Madrid on the way to the final that they're capable of knocking off one of these perpetual semifinal qualifiers that we have in Champions League now. Those being Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. I just don't see it, especially given how Juventus has played this year. They've won six in a row in league at this point, I believe. I, I just don't see over two legs them getting the best of Bayern.
1: Yeah, but Bayern has shown some chinks in the armor recently. They have a lot of injuries, uh, no question, and and some of those players will be back before the middle of February. But uh, Juventus has played better in the league. However, they opened the door, right, for Manchester City to, to to take the group, so they put themselves in this position. I agree with you. Bayern will get through over two legs, but I think this might be a trickier one, and, and Pep will see it as a trickier one than, than he would have hoped for.
2: Let's talk about Europa League here, Kartik. Uh Manchester United, Liverpool were the two big names from England in this one, although uh, Tottenham got a very difficult draw, drawing Fiorentina. But let's focus on the two uh, traditional powers here. Manchester United going up against uh, Denmark's Moneyball team, uh, the this- uh, Midgetland, I believe it is how it's pronounced. They were in Champions League two week, two years ago, but I've forgotten since then how to pronounce the team's name. Uh, this looks like a favorable draw, and the same thing with Liverpool getting Augsburg, giving Jurgen Klopp a chance to go back to Germany, but against a team that's currently sits 13th in the Bundesliga.
1: Right, Augsburg was sitting 18th until three weeks ago, so they're they're beginning to get going before the um before the winter break, which is good. Because we've seen now in the Bundesliga the toll, and we talk about this because we talk focus on the Premier League on this show, right? But the Bundesliga, the same thing has happened and in, uh, with teams that are in Europa League year after year. And In fact, two of those teams have ended up getting relegated. Uh, Hertha Berlin a few years ago when they were mm-hmm. in Europe and had all these added fixtures. And then um, even worse, got out of the group stage and, and, and I think ended up winning in the round of 32. and. Uh, they got relegated. Now they're back in the, in the Bundesliga and they're, they're near the top of the table. But uh, they had to go down for a year. And last season, Freiburg, who had a miraculous season the previous year, had all these additional European games and uh, never got out of that bottom three in uh, in Germany and went down. So uh, it, it has taken a toll and it took a toll on Hamburg a couple of years ago, too, when they uh, I think they might have stayed up just via the playoff. The, the Bundesliga, the, the third from bottom, placed the third from top in the second division, and, and uh, that's the playoff to determine who's in Bundesliga 1 the following year. Uh, Augsburg has been in the same position. They started very poorly this season in the Bundesliga. Uh, they were not scoring goals, but the last three weeks in the league, they played much better, And um, but they will be focused on the league. It'll be nice for Klopp to go back to Germany, but Liverpool will win this. Uh, as far as the Manchester United tie, I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, they win it against Mithiland. Uh, but there is a danger that probably awaits Manchester United after that because the way I think United is being viewed now is to either have to win this tournament or at least get to the semifinals or Van Hall's in real trouble. And uh, with the teams, you even just mentioned Fiorentina, teams like that that are still in, uh, involved in this tournament, Borussia Dortmund, even Liverpool themselves. United is going to draw one of those teams at some point if they keep going.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let me read off the rest of the round of 32 ties in Europa League. Valencia dropping down from Champions League, Drew Rapid Vienna, Fiorentina, Tottenham, we mentioned that one. Borussia Dortmund gets a challenge against fellow former European champion. Porto Fenerbahce takes on Lokomotiv Moscow. Anderlecht versus Olympiacos, Magitland versus Manchester United, Augsburg versus Liverpool. Sparta Praha takes on Krasnodar Galatasaray, Got Lazio. Sion takes on Braga. Shakhtar Denex gets Schalke. That's kind of a glamour tie there, as is Marseille versus Athletic Club de Bilbao. Sevilla, the two-time defending champion, takes on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team, MOLDA Sporting Club, de Portugal, leading the Portuguese league, takes on Bayer Leverkusen. Villarreal versus a Napoli team that was perfect through group stage. And then San Etienne against Basel. And, And I have
1: to point this out. Schalke and Shakhtar are both in this tournament we're having in Florida next month. Uh, they're not gonna play each other, but it's uh, pretty exciting that I'm gonna get to see two teams that are gonna then face off in uh European competition just a month later.
2: Yeah, that is pretty cool. Um just a couple of notes from me. It's very interesting that Spain had seven teams qualify for Europe and seven teams are still active. Valencia and Sevilla dropped down from Europa League, but they're gonna be a couple of the stronger dropped down from Champions League. They're gonna be a couple of the stronger teams in Europa League. Also interesting is if you look at those seven ties, the only one where you can say a Spanish team is probably not favored is Villarreal going up against Napoli, and they still have a very good chance of winning that one. Villarreal, a very good team there. Spain is running away with the UEFA coefficient, and they're going to rack up more points over the first rounds of these two tournaments, first knockout rounds of these two tournaments. Uh, Yeah,
1: although I I do want to mention that England got a major boost. Uh, There's just been this fear of losing the fourth Champions League spot By Manchester City and Chelsea both winning those groups, I think that that danger is averted, even if they all lose in the next round, at least for another year.
2: Yeah, and I think Manchester United and Liverpool getting favorable draws. And then we talked about Tottenham having a difficult draw against Fiorentina. Well, Fiorentina is not going to be thrilled to get Tottenham. And then Napoli, as good as they are, they drew Real. They could easily go out in the round of 32 Real. We see how dangerous they are every time they play Real Madrid as they did this weekend, and, uh, and Barcelona, they typically find a way to give those teams a problem. So Italy is going to have some trouble racking up points. We already talked about Juventus and Roma's matchups. They're likely done in the round of 16. Uh, Kartik, let's shift our focus to Germany. I think most of our listeners by now know that you were in Germany two weekends ago. You were there with uh, Christopher Harris, the founder of World Soccer Talk, along with Terence Ross, who writes about Spain, amongst other things, for our site. How was your Germany trip? What what were the standout out moments? So what exactly were you doing over there?
1: Yeah, so so Terence, uh, Christopher, and I uh, were were there for uh, four days, uh, ostensibly to promote this Florida Cup tournament I just talked about with Schalke's in, and Bayer Leverkusen's in as well, but also to. Uh, to kind of get an overview of the league itself and help promote the league and and, and get an understanding for the league in the United States, now that uh, the Bundesliga is on Fox television in the United States, is going to have eight games, six, eight games, or eight games, I I can't remember what the number is, on network over the air in uh, the second half of the season after their winter break. And because the Bundesliga has finally come out of its shell uh, of uh, insularity, where they allowed this great product they've had for years to not really be exposed to international markets the way the Premier League has been. And now, of course, the Premier League has all these advantages, right? Uh, they have uh, all these foreign owners. They have all this influx of foreign players. And most importantly, they have the English language. But they've also been very aggressive about sending their teams out on the road. I mean, even in uh, in uh, here in the U.S., we've seen numerous championship clubs have uh, – uh, Preseason tours of the United States. And whereas Germany, the German clubs never came to the United States at all at any level. So uh, it's it's something they now realize was a mistake as far as their courting of the American market, especially when you consider the number of American players that have come through that league, high level American players. One of the clubs that we visited Bayer Leverkusen, has had arguably, uh, I know Fulham is the club that everyone thinks of when they think of American players and, and Everton. Bayer Leverkusen has arguably had more high-level American players than any other club in the world outside of Major League Soccer, or maybe even include having MLS because of the guys we're talking about, <laughs> right? And right. Uh, and they were the first club for Claudia Reyna and Landon Donovan. Uh, they were the club Frankie Haddock went to after his successful World Cup, and, and he stayed in that team for a couple of years. was still on the, their books when they went to uh, the finals of Champions League in t- 2002, and uh, obviously, uh, more, more, more recently, have had a couple of German-American players and right now have David Yeldell as, as their uh, third string keeper. So uh, Leverkusen understands and also their, their relationship with the Bayer Corporation, which owns them. They understand that they need to be aggressive in the American market. And their CEO told uh, told us that they know now they have to go to the United States. They have to be in the United States. They have to play games in the United States. They can't just sign American players. And, and beam it over, although now with the more favorable television conference in the United States, it uh, it will be helpful to them. I think uh, the other thing that came from this is their recognition. Uh, well, there's a lot that came from the trip, but the other thing came from Bayer specifically and their CEO was their recognition that even though they are a corporate club, and I have to say, my impression of that has kind of changed, and we'll get into that in a minute, because I've always had this impression that Bears is a very plastic club of plastic fans, them and Wolfsburg. And uh, after the trip, I've kind of changed my impression of that. But um, Leverkusen understands that in the market right now where the English clubs dominate spending and they have favorable TV deals, that they are in a position where they are going to have, ch- have to have Champions League football to sell the guys like Chicharito. They're going to have to have... Uh, uh, inducements to get guys to come sign for Bayer Leverkusen rather than sign for Leicester City or West Ham or uh, Southampton, these clubs that aren't even in Europe, in uh, in the Premier League because the money is so much bit better in the uh, Premier League. A uh, specific player, Ozaki, leaves mines, uh, and uh, Leverkusen thinks that they can get get him. And he ends up going to Leicester City for much more money. And uh, Chicharito, they, uh, they said that basically there were several Premier League teams that offered him more money. He wanted Champions League, and so he signed with Bayer. But if it had been about money, he would have signed with West Ham or, or whoever else made offers to him. I don't know who the other clubs were. I know West Ham was one of them. But yeah. that that's, um, that is is an issue now. So uh, the the uh, the specific example of Sun, he was bought by them for 10 million a few years ago, 10 million euros. They were able to uh, turn him into a f- fantastic player at Leverkusen Helped them qualify for Champions League. Uh, they qualified for Champions League four of the five last five seasons. They sold them for 30 million to Spurs uh, this summer. They understand, even though they're arguably the second or third richest club in Germany, that even um, when you're talking about other Premier League clubs, that there's a uh, that that, that they, they can't compete. So what you do is you, you, you try and develop players and you sell them. Uh, the one other point that was made by Bayer CEO that I think is so interesting is that. Uh, and I don't know what the Bundesliga is going to do about that, that. That the league has a problem because of the perceived lack of competitiveness at the top, because of uh, Munich's dominance, Bayern Munich's dominance in the last few years, and how there are these cycles of teams. Uh, Dortmund being the most recent one. Before that, it was uh, it was Wolfsburg. Before that, it was Schalke or Stuttgart, and before that, it was Werder Bremen. But there are these cycles, in Leverkusen before that. These cycles of teams challenging Bayern, but then Bayern always takes it back, right? At a certain point,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: pulls away even further. So um, that's that. That's a concern Leverkusen has. So that that was interesting. Now Schalke, I'll tell you, was a little bit different than I anticipated. I, I've always had this great impression of Schalke as people's club, something very organic, something very special, unique. I'm not saying it's not, but I before the trip, I had this impression. Okay, I'm going to see this plastic club, corporate club. Really not interested. I can't wait till we get Jelks and uh, and then I'm going to see the, the you know the real football, the real supporters culture. I have to say, I, I think the 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 reality of both clubs is somewhere in the middle. I, I think Leverkusen's um, corporate structure gives them a professionalism that a lot of football clubs in Europe haven't had. They are run kind of like an American sports team with a profit model with an understanding of the market with the understanding of marketing. That's why they're, they're becoming more aggressive in the United States than anyone else uh, other than Bayern or well, Bayern is just by virtue of being Bayern, right? The labor crews is probably the most aggressive uh, one to, to look at Asian markets and, and American markets. And um, yeah, there is kind of the drawback that they don't have as many supporters. They don't have as many members of the club. They don't have 150,000 paying members like Schalke does. They have something like 20,000, but um it's more organic than I thought it was. And it is still a community club. The corporation is from that city. Schalke, I think is still a great community based model. We hear, uh, or we read David Kahn wax lyrically about Schalke and Borussia <laughs> Dortmund and all their, all their supporters. But by being a supporter community oriented club, I have to say, I think the, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, I'm not going to use the term I was thinking of, but, um, Shalka has, uh, has a stadium. They've sold a lot of sponsorships. They're using their massive stadium, which is, I believe, the second biggest in the Bundesliga. Obviously, uh, Dortmund is one of the biggest in Europe. I think maybe the second biggest behind Camp New. Or maybe
2: uh, Bernabeu might be bigger. Yeah, but Dortmund's both, the, both the big yeah, Spain yeah. ones and then uh, the Telecom.
1: Yeah, so then uh, Dortmund's third. But Schalke's got, I think, the second largest stadium in the Bundesliga behind Dortmund. And uh, this is probably the second most supporter, hardcore supporters behind Dortmund. Uh, Munich has more overall supporters, but they're not as hardcore, but they have used their, their stadium feels like a multi-purpose facility. It feels like an American stadium. Uh, they, they were talking about concerts coming in, uh, uh, ho- ice hockey matches, all these different kind of events. Their campus is beautiful. It, it's um they've got all the training fields and the, and the youth Academy, the youth Academy is outstanding, but the, the feel of the club and the feel of the stadium was a little more corporate than I expected. And Leverkusen was less corporate uh, than I expect. Now I wouldn't say that Schalke is more corporate than Leverkusen, but it's just, I came in with, and, and Richard, you've heard the same thing for years. as a yeah. football supporter, football person. You hear Leverkusen, plastic club, corporate club, uh, big money, Schalke, organic people's club. Uh, you know uh, what football is about. And the truth is somewhere in between on both of them.
2: Hmm. Uh, You talked about the Bundesliga branching out a little bit. I guess this should be obvious to anybody that knows the world landscape, but it probably shouldn't go without saying the obvious motivation here is that Germany is now realizing that they have to change their approach, their look towards the world in order to compete with La Liga, but more specifically the Premier League.
1: Yeah, well, it, it is more specifically the Premier League because I think they're lamenting the Premier League, getting into all these markets, particularly the United States and Asia, uh, there is obviously the, um, the attraction of the English language, and that is a magnet to people, and some, some of the cultural influence Britain or, or even uh, the United States has had in, in Asia, uh, and there's this kind of merging of Anglo-American culture that uh, takes place that, that has an influence. But Germany has an advantage over Spain and Italy in that the games... Uh, on television, are very well produced. There's a uh, better better uh, atmosphere at the games in Germany than there are in Spain and mm-hmm. in um, Italy. There are more traveling fans. I mean, there's some teams that don't travel well, but the teams we've talked about, Dortmund and, and Schalke, they they take 10,000, 15,000 to every road game, right? right. Uh, to every away match. And even we saw Leverkusen play Schalke, and I have to say Schalke probably had 35% of the fans there. Uh, which furthered that first day when we were at that match. My impression of, oh, Schalke is a people's club, a and corporate kind of stale club. But then after interacting with both clubs away from the game, I realized that um, they're both a little different than I thought they were. But the point being that they're traveling fans, their atmospheres, the games are better produced uh, on television. They have uh, their players, most of their players speak English, which um, – isn't the case in, in, in Spain or Italy. So they do have this opportunity to advance, and and, and the quality of football is very, very good. Yeah, and it's, the, it's
2: the closest thing to England, and I think you and I at this yeah. moment in time would say the quality of football is better than England. I mean, you and I have been so depressed over the last couple of weeks with the Premier League product. But the one thing that is different, Karthik, and this is my cynicism coming through, is that Germany and their fans aren't front and center the same way the Premier League is in the way that it's being packaged to Americans. You see it every weekend on NBC Sports here. And I find it a little bit depressing that the people watching the game seem to get so much coverage in comparison to the actual game itself. Time that could be gone... Uh, given to analysis from Kyle Martino, Robbie Earl, Robbie Musto is instead fan shots and bars and pictures from Instagram. And those are the one, those are the things that we don't get from Germany. And it seems like those are the things that so much of this market, at least the thinking goes that so much of this market latches onto.
1: Yeah. The premier league is now this cool product in the United States. I mean, I, I, I used this analogy with someone a couple days ago that when I wear Manchester city stuff out, to, uh, to restaurants, to bars, even to meetings, there's inevitably someone, if I'm at Starbucks, says, oh, yeah, Man City, I saw them against Lester the other day or whatever. Uh, if I wear a shirt of an MLS team or even the U.S. men's national team, no one cares. No one says anything to me. they says, oh, that's, you know, a stereotypical so- soccer fan. There is something very cool about the Premier League in the United States. If I were to throw on a Schalke shirt or a Leverkusen shirt or a Dortmund shirt, I'd get the same reaction as the MLS fans do, right? Or the I do with the MLS shirt or the uh, the U.S. National Team shirt. There is something that they've done to connect. Uh, I think part of it is building the uh, uh, the uh, ancillary aspects of the league to an American audience in a way that no other league has, including MLS. You don't get all these magazine programs and documentary programs about Major League Soccer unless you're on their website. They do a such a fantastic job at MLS Digital, but it's not on NBC, right? All these, anymore, uh, yeah. Yeah, these Premier League programs are on NBC, the Premier League download, and they have all these uh, fan shots, as you mentioned, and our pregame show is building into matches, which you don't get for Major League Soccer. And it's uh, their television partner is so committed. And I just think, and Chris, Chris Terrence and I talked to the Bundesliga about this, uh, that the difference in television partners, unfortunately, is, is prohibitive for them. Because versus the Premier League, uh, Fox is never going to build those a- ancillary things. They just don't have the commitment to soccer-related properties. They're 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 into critical mass as far as soccer, right? This was and the it,
2: Bundesliga's it, opinion about. Yeah,
1: no, no. This is what we told the Bundesliga. Oh, okay. That 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 they're that they're Fox isn't building critical mass. Yeah. They don't have the ancillary programs. They don't build the brand around it. They didn't have uh, shows before they launched their Bundesliga coverage this past summer which explained the league and explained the clubs. Whereas NBC spent weeks before yeah. that first uh, Premier League game in 2013, now three seasons ago, uh, w- uh, with programs, even on over-the-air NBC, explaining the league uh, basically as a beginner's guide. And there are so many people, Richard, that have told me they've become Premier League fans since <laughs> – I mean, we live in this bu- bubble where we right. think all these people are soccer fans. There are so many people I now know who become Premier League fans. Just since NBC
2: got there. No, I was I was rights. working at NBC at the time, and we would see the reaction of so many hardcore fans going, oh, you're patronizing us. But there are so many people that connected through stuff like that, or the Ted Lasso video that became very popular. And from also working at Fox, going directly from Fox to NBC, I got to see what the, the difference in in-market prestige between those two products. I went the same year that the Premier League switched over between the places, too. It's... I don't know what Fox has to do to change this, but Fox does not have the in-market credibility that NBC does or ESPN does. Uh, Fox has to start rebuilding that. and There is not necessarily a stigma, but like you said, it's an obstacle when you're on Fox and your main competitor is on a brand that's kind of give them more credibility
1: right and, and i think this is where we're at in this country is that we continue to grow the sport every year there's so many new soccer fans coming to the sport it's growing exponentially every single year or every two years or so and so when you look at that just kind of on a graph you think okay there's all this growth opportunity all these new fans could be bundesliga fans or they could all be la liga fans or they could all be mls fans well unfortunately i think what's happening is because the premier league is the established market leader as uh, those new fans get connected with the sport and they're seeking out uh, options on, on what to watch and what to follow. They're going to go to the Premier League and but basically by the same percentage that they've been going to the Premier League. Maybe a little less now that uh, Fox is showing uh, Bundesliga games over the year starting in, in January. But uh, I think it's, it's an uphill struggle for the Bundesliga in the United States. Uh, for various reasons, but I think one of the biggest reasons is the television partner, and it's unfortunate because I was excited, I mean, I think we were all excited, we were like, finally, the Bundesliga, which I think is the for me, I know people say La Liga is the best league in the world. I think the Bundesliga is in the world.
2: Personally, yeah, we could fight about that another time. We could,
1: yeah, yeah, you and I, could, especially. I think we have we have a different opinion on that. Yeah, I think the Bundesliga is the best league in the world. I would put the Premier League third, La Liga second, and I think the argument is between the Bundesliga and La Liga. So I'm thinking, okay, finally, at one of those two leagues has a serious television partner in the United States, and Fox does nothing with. it. They just kind of flip on the games, and they're not building the product, and it's been so disappointing. And what we've seen is NBC at the same time get a six-year extension to their contract. Premier League was always going three years, three years, three years in the U.S. Six-year extension at NBC. Once they got that extension, double down. Games on USA. More Premier League download. Premier League Live is now uh, – sometimes it would be 15 minutes, a half an hour before a game. Now it's an hour. Every, you know, every Monday, 2 o'clock. Uh, game, uh, Premier League Live after. Premier League Live, hour and a half after Sunday games. And I think it's uh, – uh, the Premier League and their television partner raising their their game. Yeah, they have a great uh, relationship. Those those and... two have a
2: great relationship. They love each other. Uh, from from what I understand, the Premier League is very happy with the switch, as evidenced by that six year deal you're talking about. And NBC continues to see that as just a flagship product.
1: Yeah, and, and I think this is the difference. It's a flagship product in their entire sports landscape. Whereas the Bundesliga may be an anchor product for Fox, the Fox Soccer Division, the Fox Soccer group, uh, the Bundesliga, the Champions League and MLS would be their flagship products. Uh, The Premier League is a flagship product along with NFL Sunday Night Football and the NHL and now NASCAR for NBC Sports. Mm. Big difference.
2: So after your time, your four days in Germany and uh, talking to people since you've come back over, are you any more optimistic about the Bundesliga's chances of cracking this market? Um,
1: I am optimistic about specific clubs. and uh, The Bundesliga is not going to want to hear that, but I don't think you're seeing... (laughs) You don't think think
2: Augsburg is going to take over the United States anytime soon?
1: Exactly right. Whereas the Premier League, I mean, there are people who just want to be Premier League fans, so they decide, you know what, I'm going to be a Crystal Palace fan, or I'm going to be a Southampton fan, or I'm going to be a Leicester City fan. You're not seeing that. You're not going to see that with the Bundesliga. I think uh, Leverkusen's approach was very refreshing. They want to be very aggressive. They have, with the Bayer Company as their corporate parent, they have the infrastructure already in the U.S. They have the former players uh, connected with the U.S. and, and, uh, they have Chicharrito right now. So, right. They have the right player to market in the United States also. So I think they're going to have success. I think they're going to be new Labour and fans. I think Schalke coming over is good for them. The Bundesliga wants everybody to make this commitment. I think there is still an issue with Bundesliga clubs, uh, taking their preseason and winter break in Turkey or in Spain and doing those sorts of things. Remember, English clubs used to do that too. And it was when the Premier League decided to go macro marketing that everybody started going to Asia first and then the United States after that. And um, I don't think the buy-in from all the German clubs is there yet. However, having said that, I do think there is a, a following developing for these other clubs. And I think Dortmund, even though they haven't come here Dortmund has a following because of their, the color of their, their shirts, because Puma pushes them in a way. Adidas doesn't push the Bundesliga brands. Hmm. Uh, Adidas pushes their national teams and the German national team and MLS brands in this country. Uh, Puma pushes, uh, p- besides uh, Italy and Arsenal, uh, Dortmund's the, the product I see Puma pushing the most in this country. And also, because as I said, the, the kid is nice and they're the rival to Bayern. So I think there are people who naturally, want to follow the league, who don't want to follow Bayern, who don't want to support Bayern, who are, who are gradually going to gravitate to Dortmund. So I think for certain teams, their potentials there. Fox needs to be a good partner to them and exploit that and put those teams on, promote those teams. Uh, to this point, they haven't done that.
2: Well, the potential certainly is there. And as a testament to it, we just spent half an hour talking about the Bundesliga, which is more time than we've ever talked about the Bundesliga on the World Soccer Talk podcast. Granted, a long time we were the EPL Talk podcast. But at least the Bundesliga is getting into these conversations now. Whether they solidify their place in the conversation remains to be seen. Everybody, we're going to be coming back later this week with a preview podcast. Myself, Nipun Chopra, and Lawrence McKenna as Kartik Krishnayar takes a couple of weeks off. But until that show and until our weekend show for World Soccer Talk, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik,
1: enjoy your football.
2: The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom. Or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, Lozcast And Nippoon is Chopra 7 don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email richard at worldsoccertalk.com.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands.